This is Alan Conlon with the Becker's ASC podcast, and I'm pleased to be joined today by Andy Ball, CEO of Beverly Hills ASC Venture in California. Andy, a pleasure to have you on, for, on with us today. Um, before we dive into this, this discussion, I'd love to turn the floor over to you and hear a little bit more about your role, your background, and of course, uh, your ASC. Sure. So uh, as, you, uh, as you said, my name is Andy Bull. I'm the chief executive for the Cedars-Sinai uh, Joint Venture ASCs out here in Beverly Hills. Um, I was actually born and raised in the UK and went to university over there before moving out um, to Michigan, actually, when I was 22. Um, I did uh, joined a boutique consulting and lobbying firm there. Um, when I was there, I was there for 14 years, Cater Davis & Associates. Started working in uh, diagnostic imaging and advising health systems and, and physician groups on strategic plays and then started actually implementing those strategic plays. And then that, that rolled into surgery centers um, and opening those for some, for some pretty big groups out there in Michigan. Um, and then I was there for about 14 years and then CEDAS uh, recruited me out to L.A., um, to oversee their joint venture um, ASCs. They had exited their uh, management company and decided to bring it in-house. So I've been here for about two and a half years, joined just prior to COVID, and it's been pretty much nonstop since then. We've got four ASCs here, 90210 Surgery Medical Center, Precision Ambulatory Surgery Center, Linden Surgical Center, and Spalding Triangle Surgery Center. We do about 14,000 surgeries a year cover almost every specialty. Um, and we are one of the busiest, if not the busiest outpatient spine program in the country. Um, and we were the first ASC in California to be awarded the Spine Center of Excellence by uh, the Joint Commission. That was, uh, I think last year, um, we finalized that. We're also fortunate enough this year to be named uh, the second best ASC in the US. So we're very, very pleased about that. Uh, much like every ASC in the country, our volumes exploded during COVID. So we went from about 8,000 surgeries annually when I joined, about 14,000 right now. Um, we worked really closely with, with Cedars-Sinai during the first and second waves, um, and they already had uh, out-migration plans, but those got accelerated and provided much-needed um, kind of capacity for them and then provided a, a good book of business for us. And we, we keep rolling on, so it's been an exciting couple of years. Yeah, exciting and challenging, no doubt, I bet. But uh, thank you so much for, for, get, for giving us that breakdown, Andy. Um, so, so to kick things off, um, I'd love to hear from you, kind of when you look at the healthcare space at the moment, what are the two or three most, most interesting or exciting trends that you're following? Yeah, actually for me, um, I mean, we're seeing a lot of AI and automation. It finally seems to be making uh, some headway in healthcare. There's been a lot of products around promising um, great things, but they all seem to have had some limitations. Um, in the last kind of few weeks, actually, I've had three demos for, for so-called automated intelligence systems, one in the revenue cycle space, one in supply chain, and one, one that was in uh, AI-driven nursing calls. And I think, I think we're going to see some, some promising thing there. The revenue cycle conundrum uh, is a pretty interesting one for us. We were asked to look at a company the other week, and it, it had a great offering. They developed like a really nice suite of analytics. And the feedback we provided, though, was great. You've got the information, you know, for denials and uncovered services, but how, how does that get automated and acted on quickly? Our issue is, you know, once we know about a problem, how do we make sure that scheduling knows it's an uncovered procedure or 
the supply chain folks know that that implant is not covered and that an alternative needs to be found. So I think, and they had some pretty good answers on that. And I think we can all agree that we spend an inordinate amount of time fighting with the insurance companies and looking at AR. Um, so if we can speed up the turnaround on some of those things, that would be uh, that would be amazing. And I think the companies are finally getting there. It's gone from just a a simple analytics part to actually implementing and, and automating some solutions on that front. So that's probably one of the one of the key ones that 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 I'm seeing out there. And then I think the other other one right now is staffing. Um, you know, we are we are really focused here on on diversity and safety. Um, COVID kind of reoriented our working environments, um, and it's it's still a bit of a challenge for us. Um, keeping staff and and trying to get that next generation in. We're seeing a lot of people cycling out, retiring early, or just jumping around for higher wages. And so that's that's putting pressure on us developing that that talent and leadership in-house. So we're really having to look inward on on what it is that, that we do internally. And we're just firm believers, and there's a lot of evidence out there that a diverse team and inclusive culture is going to drive better outcomes for our patients and allow us to to have kind of a more effective workforce. So we've, we're working on that. We're getting greater engagement with that and with our employees. And I think that's going to lead ultimately to a higher retention rate for us. We're also really, really focusing on the physical and mental health of the workforce. Obviously, every single one of us faced COVID issues. We didn't shut down for a day. Um, and, and I know a lot of surgery centers didn't, and we were sort of treating patients in urgent need of surgery without actually knowing or having any real guidance from the CDC very early on. So it was it was sort of easy for us to redesign the space, but I think the next thing we're looking at right now is burnout. And we've uh, we've taken some some steps and started to work with Cedar Sinai and developing a wellness provision for our staff because we're just we're aware the burnout is coming or has come. Um, and we just want to be ahead of the curve and make sure that we can deal with that. Yeah, and obviously to pick up on, on staffing, something that you mentioned there, obviously uh, not just unique to SE, but we're seeing a big, big challenge across the healthcare space. I, I'm wondering if you could expand just a little bit in terms of strategies you found kind of useful or beneficial in terms of recruiting and also like retaining that top tier talent. Yeah, I mean, it's a struggle, and I don't think there's a golden bullet on any of it. You know, one of the things we're trying to do is be very engaged and listening. You know, we've developed some flexible working practices, so office staff being able to do some portion of telecommuting, you know, working from home. Obviously, that doesn't work for clinical staff, but offering a more flexible approach to shift work within reason, um, you know, so allowing them to pick some of the some of the shorter uh, shift patterns or doing longer days, but fewer days, especially here in LA where the traffic is bad as it is and gas prices and everything else. We also are really committed and try to highlight to the employees that there's a path here for everybody to, you know, to move up or to change jobs. We want them to know that we're investing in them, you know, they're going to be around for a while. So in fact, I just had one of my AP clerks come in here the other day and say she'd really like to to see if she could, if she would enjoy going and being a surgical tech. So she's she's actually in the OR this morning observing a few cases, um, and that to me kind of makes my heart sing a little bit. Um, you know, if, if we can keep a good team member here, even if they're doing something different or they want to grow in a different way, and we can accommodate that, that's the best way to do it. 
Um, we've got, you know, stories of surgical techs going to nursing school and coming back as circulators or folks in the in sterile processing going out into the ORs. Um, and they are beyond the most effective, most committed employees, um, you know, to have. And then they're, they're just part of the family and the furniture and they know us and they know, you know, how we work in our physicians. So it's just showing that we have that um, ability and for people to grow. And I guess it's easier for us in a way, we're not just one surgery center, but you know, we're part of a bigger system. But I think that's that's key. And then really just paying attention to the feedback. You know, there's only so much we can do on competing on wages. Um, but you know, you just look at the whole package and what you can do on the soft items, like you know, flexible patterns, and maybe even taking on more part-time staff and allowing them to to work that way than you typically would. Yeah, for sure. I'm really interested to get your insight there into how you're kind of combating that. Um, and, and obviously, at the start of the conversation, you, you touched on AI analytics, just talked a little bit about the staffing challenges there. But looking ahead, like five, five years or so, what kind of industry check trends will you be following? What do you see coming down the pipeline? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I keep my eyes open. I wish I had a crystal ball on this. We're seeing, I mean, there's been a trend for years on the mergers and the integration and consolidation. But I think... COVID, uh, we just saw a huge acceleration in physicians leaving private practice to be employed by healthcare systems. And and seeing that interaction uh, with ownership and surgery centers and and how it's going to define um, how it's going to define their motivation. So, you know, a surgery center right now, we're a partnership between a hospital and private physicians. And that's um, you know, that's going to drive what it is that we're doing and why we're doing what we're doing. So are we here to make a profit? You know, if it's an employed physician by a hospital and they're not getting, they're not getting a part of the facility fee or the profits that come out of a surgery center, what is it that that's driving them to come to the surgery center? And it's probably efficient, you know, cases and, you know, a better work-life balance versus, you know, some of our more entrepreneurial physicians, um, you know, that are coming in here to make, to make a successful business venture. So that's something I, I'm keeping my eyes peeled um, and, and trying to see what happens um, with that. Um, I think that's going to be a massive thing that the industry, you know, adapts to. Mm-hmm. And what, what kind of unique challenges will be specific to an ASC in your scenario? One that obviously has that tie, that affiliation to, to a hospital or a big health system such as Cedar sinai I think one of the biggest struggles we had, we um, took on a few programs from the hospital um, during COVID. So they were sort of traumatic cases, but they could definitely be done in an ASC environment. So it, it accelerated that out, out migration program that had sort of long been planned. The problem we had when the physicians came out, um, they are, and they're employed, so they're not vested in the entity and they're not investors and they're not necessarily entrepreneurial, you know, because they're employed and often they're prohibited from, from, from doing those things. And so coming out, educating them on, you know, we don't get reimbursed for this graft or we get paid, you know, a fraction of what this procedure would reimburse in the hospital so we can afford to do X, Y, and Z. So I think some of those, some of those conversations with those physicians were, were challenging um, and they were reluctant to come out. Um, and and then when you're telling them, hey, you know, we can't do X, Y, and Z, 
you know, that's another reason for them to push back and say, you know, I really want to go to the hospital. So it was a fine balance for us. So when we pulled pulled those physicians out in the beginning, we just said, we're not going to, we're just going to get them in here. We're going to make them fall in love with us. And then we'll go back once we have a relationship and we'll start to say, you know what, can we choose a different graft for this? Or do we really need to do fat grafting for this trigger finger or, you know, any of those items? And so, whereas I see some of the other, other, uh, other competitors in the area, just weeding through every single case and deciding we're not doing this, but we'll take this. And I, I think we got an advantage from doing, doing that, but it, it was definitely a, a struggle and it continues to be when they, when they leave a hospital and they have access to absolutely everything that they want. And we just can't possibly provide all of that. Andy, before we wrap up, I think it'd be a crime not to touch on the, the spine program at your ASC. Um, I'd love to hear from you anything in terms of developments around uh, new technology there, kind of engaging in spinal bundle payments or any kind of uh, achievements or milestones that you're particularly proud of within that spine program of late? Yeah, I mean, we grew that program and COVID again accelerated that from we were doing about 200 fusions a year to we're doing about 700 right now. Um, and we have three days a week where everything in the OR, everything in the OR is just spine. And so we have a, we, we use the opportunity. We truly, truly engaged with the, with the center of excellence process. You know, we weren't just checking the boxes. So we've done amazing. We have amazing clinical collaborations between urology and anesthesia and the spine surgeon to come up with protocols that we actually eliminated the instance of post-operative urinary retention, which is one of those common complications that have patients bounce back to the ER afterwards. Um, so that was one of them. And then using uh, novel blocks to avoid or be very sparing with narcotics and to be able to get those patients home. We had out of 700 patients last year, we had two that ended up staying with us overnight. Everybody else was home within four to six hours. And we really were able to gear up the team and focus the team on completely on spine and truly get that center of excellence designation, even though on Tuesdays and Thursdays of the week, we're doing urology and GYN and, and you know, podiatry cases down there. We really um, were able to elevate the team and the provision uh, for patients that we were giving. And we're two years into it. And it's nice. We see friends and referrals, you know, to, to family members coming back and just saying what a wonderful experience they had. Um, and, you know, it's a challenge. I mean, it was convincing anesthesia these cases were appropriate to do and building up everyone's comfort level over time. So it's nothing that you, you know, you're going to do overnight. But, you know, with a good with a good spine surgeon, with a good group that's meeting every week and that's looking at the data and, and kind of pushing but not being too aggressive, um, the, the program just exploded. And we were very, very fortunate. We haven't used robotics with it. Um, I know there's there's always this craze. One of my old surgery centers um, before I moved down here, we had we had robotics for spine. It it's possibly something that will come. We're an older our ASCs are older, so their rooms are a little bit smaller, um, and we will focus more on efficiency and getting cases through the OR and doing well with the patients. I'm sure robotics going to come. It's just obviously with no advanced reimbursement for it um, and and limited space to to get it in. It was difficult. So really, from a technological standpoint, I can't say we engaged 
particularly with state-of-the-art technology. It was just really focusing on getting our clinical folks up to up to par. The one thing that I really would like to do a shout out for, though, is we engaged with Outcome MD, which is a patient-reported uh, outcomes measure. So when the patients come in, we're having them score, you know, functional, and it's it's based on your diagnosis code. So if you've got, you know, lower back pain, one of the questions might be. Um, so how far can you ambulate a day? And then it periodically, based on the procedure and the diagnosis code, will check in with the patient and it will say how, you know, and it will ask the same question. So the, the patient begins to see, okay, great, I don't feel 100% better, but I didn't realize I'm actually work, walking 50 yards further than I was prior to the surgery. And so we saw this huge improvement in satisfaction. We were also able to make changes you know, in our process and our intake and our education of patients to help with that. And that we've been tracking those outcomes for, for two years now for some of our patients. And that data, we haven't quite figured out how to mine it all. It's going to be incredibly valuable and was valuable for getting through the, the center of excellence process. So I, I'm pretty proud of, proud of that um, too. And I mean, I mean, it was all, all the team and the surgeon effort. Yeah, I mean, fantastic. Really, really delighted to kind of uh, get the inside track on kind of the spine program there and also the impact on PROMS and, and how that data has uh, become so useful to your practice. Um, Andy, before I let you go, I'd love to hear from you. Um, what advice do you have for other ASC administrators out there uh, looking to build a great culture and sustain success? Yeah, I don't think the the principles of a successful culture are going to be a surprise to anyone. Probably trust and openness, empowerment, cultural learning. I think where a lot of us fail, including me, is 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 in the execution of some of these. You know, sometimes we'll just put off difficult conversations. Um, the administrator here and director of nursing, Benita Tapia, has just taught me so much about this over the last two and a half years. Uh, we've all been on the business end of a frustrated surgeon, you know, whether the AC isn't working, you've changed the, the supplier of the coffee, um, you know, the, the graph they want isn't available. Um, and we just dread returning that call from the surgeon or the voicemail or the text message. Benita just will face it down. She'll walk in the OR and or the dictation room and go tell the surgeon, you know, exactly what we're doing to try and fix those things. And the important part of that to me is that the staff see that you're there with them. And I think if they feel that you're ready to take a bullet with them, that you're as engaged in fixing the problem, it it's going to foster them to do the same thing. And in fact, I know this is true because a week ago, I got a call from, from one of our uh, pre-op nurses. Um, she had been dealing with a bad-tempered surgeon who you know, was not able to proceed with a case when he wanted to proceed with it. And I thought the call was for me to call the surgeon to, you know, to to deal with with his uh, with his anger. But it wasn't. She was calling me to say she'd spoken with the surgeon. She'd smoothed it over. She'd scheduled the case to to go ahead at an alternate time. She'd spoken with the patient, explained why that was happening. And the only reason she was calling me is if I saw something goofy on the schedule. You know, she just wanted me to understand why. Two years ago. That conversation that would never have happened. The conversation would have been, you know, hey Andy, can you can you help us get through this? Can you make a call to the surgeon and to the patient? Um, but empowering them to do that and showing them, you know, we don't always get it right, but if we can focus on fixing it for the next time, that's that's the more important thing. So I think it's just, you know, it's investing in your people um, and it's empowering them where you can, and then it's just backing them up and just making them not scared to, you know, to make a mistake and to learn from it. 
Yeah, I love that. I think uh, some great leadership advice to wrap up on just empowering your staff to be a bit more proactive rather than reactive to, to some of the challenges that they're facing. Um, Andy, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, it's been a real pleasure getting to talk to you and uh, I look forward to continuing the conversation down the line. Perfect. Thanks so much.